Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, what I'd like you to do is turn to Exodus chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21. Very familiar passage, but we're going to go a little bit deeper than normal. And then there's a lot of excellent application in all of this. And I've entitled the message, Handling Difficult People. And uh, what you're going to see is Moses is going to handle the most difficult person you could possibly imagine. I almost feel sorry for Moses, and I do feel sorry, I guess, because I thought about this, and I thought, this guy has to go in front of a Hitler, in front of Stalin, in front of a Pol Pot, in front of Mao Zedong. And you think, could you and I have done that? I mean, he had to be freaked out. He's going against the most powerful human being on the planet, and Moses has to go confront him. Now, you may not have to confront Pharaoh, but on the spectrum, you're eventually going to have to confront people that are difficult, that are hard to handle, that are stubborn, ignorant, obstinate, toxic, perhaps. They'll be on the spectrum, and just like Moses did, you will be called to make a statement of truth to them and level consequences to them for behavioral changes. Sometimes that might happen in your marriage, might happen in your family, someone's acting uh, out of control, someone's an addict, someone can't get their life straightened out or whatever, they can't get their thinking straightened out, and now you and I are responsible to confront in a loving way. Okay, so what you're going to see here is how God lays out the confrontation to Pharaoh. It is a beautiful perfect example of how we are to talk to people. And you can use this in your family. You can use this if you go in front of the city council. You can go use this in front of anybody you talk to. It's the same principles. And so, again, what's the setting? Obviously, there, you know, this Pharaoh has put the Israelites under captivity, and now Moses has been trained 40 years in the desert, and now Moses is being sent to confront Pharaoh for the very first time. So that's what we're going to study. And basically what's happening is the Jews are threatened with their existence. Pharaoh, because he's satanically inspired, is threatening the very existence of the Jews. He's using them for slavery. And one caveat I want to make, as you read this story, always keep this in your mind. This is a typology, this is a real event that happened, but it's a foreshadowing of a future event. Because as you will see the ten plagues... There's going to be plagues put on this earth again. In fact, there won't be 10. There'll be 28. Instead of Pharaoh, who thinks he's a god, there will be another man in the future that thinks he's God. Just like Pharaoh persecutes the Jews and wants to wipe them out, there will be another man in the future who will do a deal with the Jews and then turn on them and want to wipe them out. Just like Moses will deliver Israel, Messiah will deliver Israel from Pharaoh are really the Antichrist. It's the same story. So when you're reading this, you have to think at, in terms of eschatological future time of this happening again on a world scale. When you look at Egypt, Egypt represents the world. 
And when you see the Israelites being delivered, it's a picture of actually salvation, and Paul will make this point. So when they, they, they leave, that's their salvation, and then when they go through the Red Sea, according to Paul, that's their baptism. And then when they're wandering in the desert, that's their spiritual immaturity and baby walks with the Lord. And then going into the promised land represents spiritual maturity. So our salvation is, is typologied in what Israel does through the exodus all the way to the promised land. So it's a beautiful picture of that. So it's a lot of themes going on here. And uh, we got to remember that as we study. Okay, so let's jump into the text real quick and look at verse 1. In verse 1 it says this, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in. Now, the movies that you watch about the Exodus, it'll show you Aaron and Moses just barging in, and you know they're coming unannounced, unwelcome, and, and they just come in and let my people go. And it, that's, that's drama, that's theater. But honestly, what they're doing is actually following protocol. In the ancient world, every monarch was held to that standard of that they had to have an audience with everybody in their realm, from the lowest to the greatest. And so basically, a peasant could make an appointment to see the king in any realm, not just in Egypt, but all over the the Middle East and Near East. So this is important to understand. They apparently made an appointment, got an audience to see Pharaoh, and that's how they start. Now, this is important to understand. When you're going to confront somebody, like a city council, school board, principal, teacher, loved one, whatever, work inside of the existing system, if that makes sense. Don't go outside the system because all you're going to be, you're going to be discredited if you work outside the system. Work according to the laws there. That's what Moses and Aaron are being led to. They're working through the system. You'll see more of this. And told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now, they mention God's personal name, Yahweh, and they mention God, which is is Elohim in Hebrew. Now, the use of both words is distinguishing the God of Israel, the Elohim of Israel, as being Yahweh. Okay, why is that important? Well, understand in the ancient world, they, they worshipped foreign gods, and these foreign gods were typically uh, fallen angels or demons. Paul says that what's behind an idol, uh, a false god, is usually a demon or a fallen angel. Okay, so this, the spirit world was real to them. Just like we're to understand, it's very real. There are fallen angels and demons all over the place. And so what happens here is they're announcing that this Elohim is different than the other Elohims. And so they called angels, they called spirit creatures Elohims in general. But God is distinguishing him that I'm different than the other Elohims. I am the creator Elohim. I'm above all the other Elohims, if that makes sense. And, and, and so you have to understand, why is, why is that being used? Why? why? This is combat language. God is wanting Pharaoh and everybody to know what the real fight is. And the fight is this. It's God versus the other Elohims. It is not God against Pharaoh. It's not Moses against Pharaoh. It is at a spiritual level higher than the human level. 
And understand, the same thing is true today. When you see things happening on the ground here on earth, like crazy things, like these riots and stuff, understand that above it in the spiritual realm, there are battles going on in the spiritual realm at the same time. They correspond one-to-one. And so that's why it's differentiated by saying it's Yahweh. Yahweh is going to fight the Elohims of Egypt and go to war. And that's the same thing is true in the future. God will fight against all the false gods that have been created now. And whatever those false gods are, he will fight against them in the tribulation. And he'll fight against also Antichrist and Satan because Antichrist will believe he's a god. Pharaoh believed he was a god as well. And God's going to show that you're no god at all. Do you know what Pharaoh thought about himself? Every pharaoh thought this. So when they would die, then a new pharaoh would take over. But every pharaoh thought like this. Every pharaoh believed they were the incarnation of Horus, the son of Osiris. And therefore, they were God manifest. They were God on earth. And there was no higher God than him on the earth. And hence, because Egypt was so militarily powerful, they were the most powerful country at that time, militarily-wise, he believed he was the most high God. That's the kind of person we're dealing with, a megalomaniac that thinks he's a God. Okay, well, now we know what the stakes are. And so here's what he says. And told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Simple statement, but a very polite statement according to the Middle East traditions. Now, what you'll see in other verses, it'll say, let my people go for three days to worship me. And that that will be sprinkled in other texts. But just right here, it just says, let my people go very simply so they can come worship me. Simple. But that is the first confrontation. That is the first statement from God to Pharaoh. And I want you to notice several things about this statement. It is a Near Eastern or Middle Eastern polite way of talking. So here's what they would do in the Middle East, and they do it today. If you want to ask for something big in the Middle East, you ask for something small first. The idea of going away for three days to worship Yahweh, you know what that means? It means we're going and we're never coming back. That's how they interpreted three days. So it's a polite way of saying, hey, let us go worship God. But it really means let us go worship God forever. We're gone. We're out of here. So Pharaoh knows that this is a big ask. And and, and the whole point here is this. God is condescending to work in the system. He works through getting an audience for Moses and uh, Aaron, and then he even works with how you would present something in the Middle East or the Near East. He's working. He could have, Moses could have went in there and saying, look, if you don't let us go, you're all dead. Right? He could have done that. Just end the whole thing right now. Let's just end this whole thing. You're dead. We're out of here. But he doesn't do that. Why? The reason is, is God is going to use this whole Exodus story to be a witness about him. And so what he is showing all the world, and even us, 
is that I am dealing with a very toxic, satanically inspired individual, but I still can deal with him in grace and mercy. And so when you see that, that precedent is set, then the application comes for you and I. It doesn't matter how goofy the person you're dealing with is. It doesn't matter how dumb they are or stupid. It doesn't matter how ignorant or how, how much of an addict they are or, or whatever it is, how, how toxic they are. You still confront with grace and mercy. That's the precedent. You don't come in there with all your guns blaring saying, this is it. I'm divorcing you today. It just doesn't work like that. You have to approach things as the way God approached it. Now, several things I want to point out application-wise before we even move on, because this statement is profound. It's, it's loaded, loaded with how we properly talk to people. So here's, here's the deal. How we confront others, what you derive from this statement that God made. Number one, the first thing is you state the truth. Well, I know that sounds obvious, but you state the truth. And God states the truth. Let my people go so they can worship me. The truth is, Pharaoh, they're not your people. They're my people. You think you're the highest God, but they're not. You're not. They're my people. Statement of truth, and it's a fact. There's no debating with Pharaoh. There's none of that going on. You know, we're not saying, how do I feel about this? Or what do you feel about this? It's truth, and this is the deal. So that's the first thing when you confront. You must confront with truth. Second, Stay specific and objective about the wrong the person is doing, okay? This, as simple as it looks, is the hardest thing people can do because you know why? Their frustration is at this end. They've been dealing with this for years from this person, and it's annoying, and they are emotionally spent. So instead of staying specific, hey, we got this problem, and this is what the problem is, what it'll turn into is you're an idiot for allowing this to happen or you're this, you're a dumbbell, you just don't get it or whatever, you're too control and you start attacking the person personally. Did God call Pharaoh any names? Not at all. What did he do? State the fact, let my people go. He could have said, you're one of the most satanically inspired individuals I've ever seen. But he doesn't, right? He could have. That would be a truth. But he doesn't say that. Again, watch the politeness. Watch the respect that God has even given to Pharaoh. Huh. Third, state how the behavior affects others. Now, basically, what is implied here is let them go so that they can hold a feast to me in the wilderness. What he's implying is, Pharaoh, what you're doing to my people is you're preventing them from worshiping me. So your actions has an effect on my people. And that's how you present things to people. You show them sometimes your behavior is affecting everyone around you and how to do that. Most people don't have a clue that their behavior is affecting other people. They think they're doing what they're doing in isolation. And folks, I'm I'm, most people, when you tell them about the, what they're doing and how they're affecting people, they don't have a clue. It's all news to them, brand new. Kind of reminds me of the guy and his gal. They were recently married, and they've been, once they got married, they started fighting, and there was all kinds of issues going on. And, uh, and it finally just got so bad they had to go see a counselor. And the guy is one of those passive guys. 
and he, you know he just lets everything happen and uh, you know not a good communicator his wife on their hand on the other hand controlling domineering she you know she's got the Eve syndrome he's got the Adam syndrome and so it was just bad mix didn't know how to deal with things and they're young you know and they're in the late 20s or whatnot and so they said you know what we either are going to divorce or you know we or we got to fix this so they decided to go to the counselor to try to fix up fix it so they end up going to the counselor and uh, they sit there, and the counselor says, okay, what can I help you with? Well, the guy, being who he is, he just kind of looked at the ground and didn't say anything and just shrugged his shoulders. That's how he dealt with things, right? The wife, on the other hand, she proceeds to go 100 miles an hour and talk about 100 things the guy was doing wrong. And she just going out like a machine gun and just rapid fire. And she was going on for 15 minutes straight how bad of a dude he was. And so after about 15 minutes, the counselor could see the writing on the wall. So he gets up from where he's at and he steps over to her where she's going and she's still talking and still talking and still talking. So he grabs her by the shoulders and stands her up and plants the most passionate kiss on her you could possibly imagine. Then he sits her down, and she's in shock, and the husband's in shock, and they don't know what to think about what he just did. And so the counselor tells the husband, he looks directly at him, and he says, she needs this twice a week, every week. And so the guy's sitting there scratching his head, and he's like, okay. Well, I think I can have her here on Tuesdays and Thursdays for you. <laughs> I've met clueless guys like that. They're just clueless. Just clueless. But they're, you might be dealing with somebody like that, right? Unbelievable. But yeah, there are people like that. But then as we go, number four, make a demand for change. I want this changed. And what God is telling Pharaoh, I want this changed now. And then this segues into number five, make a demand for a new normal and a future. I, I want this to change, and I want it to change for our future, and, I, and this is going to be the new norm for our family, or this is going to be the new norm for how we do business, or this is going to be the new norm. And, and those things have to be dealt with. Six, don't initially make a threat of consequences, consequences at this stage. Did you notice in the text, there's no threat of consequences? God doesn't say, or else. Now, he will eventually. He'll get there. But the initial stage of confrontation is you don't need to say, you do this or I'm leaving you. Or you do this and, uh, you know, whatever. You, you throw Depcon 6 on it. What I notice with a lot of couples that I counsel is that when they're not getting the right behavior from the other spouse... Instead of doing the work of what God's going to do to the Pharaoh and going through all the stages, they jump to plague number 10, if that makes sense. Okay? So God doesn't even start with the plagues. He just starts with an ask. Would you do this? Would you please change? Now, what happens is people get so frustrated, they want to jump to plague 10, but they haven't done plague 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and all the way through. 
And what you'll see with the plagues is God is ramping it up little by little, little by little, to get him to break. Okay? And he can break him with one plague. He can break Pharaoh easy, but he's not doing that. He's showing grace and mercy. Now, the same thing applies to us. When you're dealing with a knucklehead, an obstinate boss, obstinate family member, you have to start issuing consequences to find, get this, to find the consequence that gives them the most pain or her the most pain to change. So you start out gradually moving yourself up that ladder. Because it's the same thing with we, when you're raising kids. Some discipline doesn't work for certain kids. Have you noticed that? And you have to find what causes the most discomfort among the kid or kids uh, that actually gets their attention. So maybe timeouts don't work for the person. Maybe spankings uh, will work better. Whatever it is, you have to find what works. Maybe they don't get to play with their friends. The, the, the toy's taken away. Whatever it is, you find as a parent, oh, this works for that child, and I can take that away, and it causes him to change. Then you found it. That's, that's the parenting thing. Well, the same true, is true with adults. You find what gives them the most discomfort, and that pain causes them to change because they don't like it. But when people tell me, they, they go in the counseling and they say, you know what, Brandon, I've tried everything. And I, I, I just come back and say, what are the consequences that you've leveled? Well, I haven't done that. Well, what have you done? Well, I just keep verbally telling the person. I said, that, that's, no, you don't do it. Once you start leveling consequences, you don't have to actually say much. God won't say much when he starts the plagues in Egypt. So again, it's just knowing biblically how to deal with people. And so, it, um, so those are the seven things you should expect and follow because God does that. Let's go back to the text. Verse 2. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now, this is not a term of saying, I just don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this Yahweh. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying this. I am the highest God in Egypt. Don't threaten me with a lesser God. I'm the God of Egypt. You won't be giving me orders. And I, the idea of I don't know him, I don't respect who he is. That's what he is saying. And so Pharaoh is very arrogant, very arrogant, obviously. And, but I want you to notice the, the kind of arrogancy that says things like that. There are people in our society, in a growing number, who are that arrogant with God. When you tell them, well, thus says the Lord, or the Bible says this, or the Bible says that, they get, they get very angry and arrogant. Who is the Lord to tell me that? How dare someone tell me how to live my life, right? They'll so, they start popping off like that. It's the same mentality, man. You start seeing it everywhere. Let me give you a principle then before we move on with all of this. The principle is this. We are responsible to warn and confront not only people but society as well. We that, that is what the Lord called being salt and light. That's our responsibility. And so that's Moses' responsibility. He's going to face an evil man, and that's what we're called to do. And here's the deal. Have you noticed people in your family that are knuckleheads, and they, they just don't change? They're always the same. And, like, you'll see them for Christmas, and it's the same story over and over again. And you see them next Christmas, it's the same story, and nothing's ever changed. You ever, you ever noticed that? 
They complain to you about their family members. They complain, 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 complain. And that's all you hear about. And I want to ask them one question. So what have you done about it? But they always act like they're the victim. They can't do anything. No, what the Scripture says is you're responsible. Let me show you a passage out of Ezekiel. And it's an Old Testament passage, but it's a principle that's derived from this passage. And Paul, the apostle, used this principle as well for his ministry. So it's a universal principle. I want you to read this with me. It says this, When I say to the wicked, this is the Lord talking, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning. That's you and I. Nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But notice this. But his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. What is the point about this? It's a principle that Paul used, so, it's a, so we can use this in the New Testament. The principle is this. When you ask, well, who's going to do it? Who's going to confront this person? Who's going to say something to them? Guess what? It's you. The responsibility is going to fall on you as a believer. And that's not fun. It fell on Moses. You think Moses really wanted to go confront Pharaoh? I'm telling you, it's the hardest thing you will ever do is to confront somebody about their behavior because you're probably the first one to ever do it. Because no one in their lives has had enough guts to stand up to them and say, it ends today, dude. And so you will have to bear that burden. But it is your responsibility. And what God is saying is that like, hey, this is on you. If you don't do it, I'm holding you accountable for it. If you do do it, then great. You've done your responsibility. Five stars. Good job. So it is ours. So let's continue to watch how this goes about. So they said, verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God. Remember, three days means forever. I'm leaving. This is a polite way of asking. We're, we're never coming back. And then notice what they tag on to this. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, what he's saying is this. It's very interesting. And I want you to miss this. Moses there and saying, look, dude, if we disobey God because you won't let us go out in the desert to worship him, he could send us a plague and disease us. And guess what? We'll spread the disease to you and affect the Egyptians and your dynasty. So we could hurt you by you not letting us do this. Also, we could be invaded. That's the idea of the swords being a military invasion. We can be invaded from the eastern side of the Nile Delta. But if we get invaded, that means you're invaded. If we go to war with another group, you're in war. What's the point in this? Why does Moses point this out? It's ingenious. I think it's God-inspired. When you talk to somebody about confronting them, you must tell them not only how they're affecting other people, but how the change will benefit them. That's what Moses is trying to get across to Pharaoh. Hey, dude, we're just trying to help you out. If you let this go down, you're going to pay for it too as a secondary uh, uh, causal issue. And so you don't want this to happen to us because it will happen to you. So when you talk, look for how it's in their best interest to change. And that helps the person understand. Verse 4. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? 
You're hurting our Egyptian economy by your labor strike. Again, this was a matter of Pharaoh exploiting the slavery of the Jews. When you see people like this exploit people, this is all through history, but it's even now today. When you see these eugenists like Bill Gates or George Soros or any of these people part of the UN or globalism, they want to reduce the population down to 500 million people. Can you believe that? 500 million. That's their goal. Well, that means you're going to have to do a lot of killing. And you know what? They don't care. If people die of plagues or, or, or whatever, that's fine to them. Because in Pharaoh's mind and in these people's minds, people are just capital. They're just property. And Pharaoh has used the Jews for making his money. He's exploiting them. Because they're free. They're slaves. You don't have to pay for them. By the way, that precedent has always been used in history by totalitarian regimes. When I study this and I pair it up with what happened in Nazi Germany, that's exactly how Hitler got his economy. Did you know that? He exploited the Jewish labor because they were in labor camps. And by the way, you're like, well, how did Germany dig themselves out of the hole economically? You know what happened? He stole the Jews' money. I mean, he, they literally took their teeth out and took the gold off their teeth, right? When they were dead. You remember that? Hitler amassed, and I can't remember how many percentage of his economy, from stealing the Jews' money. And I have, to, I have to look back on what that percentage is, but it was a very high percentage that he funded the war with, with their money. So Pharaoh's the same way. And right now, we're seeing the same thing in, with the way these globalists approach people. They just exploit them. They don't care about them. Do you really think, honestly, ask yourself this, do you really think that George Soros or Bill Gates or Gavin Newsom, Pelosi, cares about 40 million people being out of work? No, they don't care. They see it as a necessary evil. They don't care that small businesses have been shut down. They don't care because their agenda is to exploit people for votes or for power, or whatever. It's the same story with Pharaoh. It's the same stuff, man. You don't even get away with it. Get away from it. It's always the same story. So anyway, he's making this thing as, that's our, you're, you're going to mess up our labor, Moses. It's verse 6. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded, so now he retaliates because of this, commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle, or they are lazy. So the idea, he keeps saying they're lazy, they're lazy, they're lazy. The idea behind it is, look, Moses, if people have this much time to think about freedom, then they don't have enough work to do. So in Pharaoh's mind... The way to keep the Jews down is give them so much work that their only thought is of survival, not of being set free, but survival. So he loads down the work, and he says, I'm not going to provide straw for you anymore for the bricks. They have to go get it themselves, which is a major task and adds more work to them. So if they were working, you know, 12, 15 hours, they're going to now work 20 hours. It, it's a major project to do. Now, it's well attested in archaeology, uh, hieroglyphs and different manuscripts that the way the scriptures are describing the brick making is exactly what they did. There's hieroglyphs of it, and so there's plenty of evidence for how they did it. And what they would do, 
they'd get the mud, but then they would put the, the stalk of, of plants inside the brick, and I guess the stalk would give off an acid, and that acid would create uh, a pliableness with the brick, but also make it get extremely hard. And they would just let it dry in the sun. And some cultures still do it today, but that's, that's the remains of some of the straw brick. Still there, you can see the straw inside of it. Now, what happens is Pharaoh's going to make it even worse for them. But right now, they've got to go grab their own straw, which is was, another group was providing it, and it's the stem of, of whatever plant they were using. So anyway, he's making it harder on them. And he says, therefore, they cry out saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. And basically, he's saying... Uh, you know, he uses the term God instead of Yahweh, and that's showing his disdain for God. He doesn't, he doesn't, he hates God, and he's a God-hater. And that's what a lot of people in our society are. They're God-haters. Verse 9, let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. Ooh, that's blasphemy. The idea here is that what Mo, he's telling Moses and Aaron that what they're saying coming from Yahweh is a lie. He's accusing God of lying. Now, that's a big deal. That's a blasphemy. But it, it echoes back to the early days in Genesis. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden when Satan, using the serpent, said to Eve and, and Adam, you will not die. Remember that? It's an outright denial by Satan. But what, it, what, it, what it was he doing? Implicitly calling God a liar. Now, when you see today people acting out, out of sorts with the biblical morality, you know, more and more churches now are embracing gay marriage. When they do that, they are actually calling God a liar. Because God says marriage between a man and a woman. So that's, in effect, calling God a liar. When they say it's okay to abort 57, 58 million babies in the womb, and they say that's okay, it's not murder, it's a mother's right, they're calling God a liar. When they say that the current Israel there in the Middle East is not prophetically significant, and God's done with Israel, they're calling God a liar. God says, I'm not done with them, and I'm going to use them again. So our culture's doing this now. So Pharaoh was doing it, and it shows you the satanic nature behind all of this. Verse 10, And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it. So they had to go out searching for it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. Okay. So the people were scattered abroad throughout the, the land of Egypt to, to gather stubble instead of straw. So this tells you they even ran out of straw. So what's the stubble? The stubble would be where the root is and where they cut it off with a sickle. That little remaining part from, say, a wheat plant or something like that, that little stubble, they would have to go, instead of gathering stalks would be easier, they have to go and pull out the root of every piece of stubble they're going to use, which increases the labor even more. They might as well be working 24 hours now because they have to make the same quotas. Okay? Keep following me on this. There's a point to this. And, and, and it says, And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. What? Also, the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why do you 
not fulfill your task in making brick both yesterday and today and as before. Here's the thing. Why do you ask questions that you already know the answer? Pharaoh has made something impossible. Okay, if he makes something impossible for them to do, then there must be another agenda behind that. And what do you think it is? It already has a clue in the text. He beats them for it. I'm going to create a situation, a no-win situation, to where I will legally be able to beat them to death. You see how it works? When you see these crazy politicians coming up with rules that don't make sense, that there's no way to comply, like you would have to stay at home and do nothing now with these COVID-19 rules, right? And you stay there in your house, and that's all you can do. Why are they doing things that have no common sense? Conditioning. They're conditioning. You look at any industry, and when you see the stupidity of some of these industries, like the educational industry, and you look at the edu educational complex and what they're doing, and none of the things they do make sense. Think about this. The schools want to go back, but they can't keep the rules of Gavin Newsom and still have a school because of social distancing. And it's like, you fools. Do you understand you have been given something that you can't comply with? You fools. That's how goofy they are. Now, you can chalk it up saying, well, they're just dumb. No common sense. Yeah, I get you. I agree. No common sense. Dumb. That's Roman one uh, mind. But I'm talking about the educrats. What do you think their game is? They know what they're doing. I'm not talking about the bottom levels. I'm talking about the higher-ups. The one who says, this is not about education, quote, this is for power. They said that. These unions, they're not for educating. But they start giving rules that no one can comply with. I wonder why. Oh, because you have another agenda. You want something else, don't you? Watch and see what else the schools propose. Watch it. It's coming. I warned you. I'm not going to tell you. But it's coming. Anyway. So, verse 15, we continue on. Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing with thus with your servants? I mean, this makes no common sense, right? You want us to social distance, but I go to Walmart and there's 300 people in Walmart. I don't get it. I, Home Depot and Lowe's has become the new hangout for everybody. It's the new date night if you haven't went there. It's really good to take your date there. Where's the social distance? I'm walking through Home Depot and I'm right next to everybody in the tool section and um, nuts and bolts section. There's 50 million people in there. No one, no, one, no one's social distancing, but yet I can't have a church. Duh! What's going on here? It doesn't make sense unless you know the objective, unless you know there's a hidden agenda behind it all. Oh, you're a conspiracy nut, Brandon. I can't believe you would say things. It's, it's nothing more than them just being stupid. These people are not stupid. They know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. Anyway, why are you dealing with us with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants. Obvious. They make brick. And to us make brick, and indeed your servants are beaten. 
Oh, I wonder what the beaten's for. That's the real agenda. But the fault is on your own people. You don't supply us any stocks or anything. We can't do this. You have given us an impossible standard to meet. I guess we're all going to get beat every day. Is that what your goal is? Yes. That's the goal. We want you beat to death. We want to kill every one of you. Don't you get it? See, that's what people don't understand. They never see past to the real agenda. They never see it. They just see the surface level. Well, this doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't make sense because there's an ulterior motive behind it. So now, why did they ramp up COVID-19 to be on like, you're going to die. Everyone's going to die. Worldwide pandemic, death toll on Fox News, constantly running. Why? To create a panic, to create fear, to allow you to lend yourself eventually to what they want, a digital currency, a tracking system on your person, and a proof of whether you've been vaccinated so we know everywhere you go. And by the way, your banking will be on that, your health care will be on that, everything will be on that. You would want that, wouldn't you, for safety and security, and, and you would want, want to infect other people, right? This is a moral issue, isn't it? You see what I'm saying? They're going to moralize what they want from you. You don't want to kill the elderly. You want to kill grandma and grandpa by just going out with a mask? How dare you want to kill grandma and grandpa? Don't you? Quit being selfish. Quit being selfish. The masks don't work, by the way. Just telling you, they don't work. And now there's mask shaming. Have you been mask shamed at Walmart? There's people mask shame you. How dare you not wear a mask? You want to kill everybody in this store? You haven't been mask shamed? Just keep doing it. Watch what happens. We've had people in, in, in our congregation that went to the doctor, and the doctor told them, don't wear a mask. And they go, like, why? They're, 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 Fauci's telling us to wear a mask. Because it'll give you pneumonia. You can't be breathing out of a mask all day. You're breathing the same air. It goes back into your lungs. The germs that you're expelling are coming back in your lungs, and you get pneumonia. Duh. It's like making bricks with no straw. Wear a mask, but no, you'll get pneumonia. Dude, it's like I'm in Egypt. This is the same stuff. Stupid, but ulterior motive. Why do you think they want you to wear a mask? Do you think it's really, really about medical? No. It is social conditioning. It's a mindset that, well, you know, everyone's going along with this, so I guess I better put on my mask. It's called uh, uh, following off the cliff like a lemming. It's social conditioning conditioning. Well, everybody's wearing a mask. I feel really out of place by not wearing a mask. That's what it's causing people to do, to mentally break down and say, I better put on a mask because I feel weird that that I'm the only one not wearing a mask. Take a look around you in this place. You get it, don't you? Now, if you're, you're part of that susceptible society, if you're part of that, you, uh, where the thing could affect you, yes, do it. Protect yourself. But 99% of the people are recovering? Hmm. Interesting. Verse. What verse am I on? I can't even see my thing. I need my glasses. 17. But he said, you are idle. Idle. Lazy bums. Therefore, you say, let me go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now and work. For no straw shall be given you. Get, yet you shall deliver the, the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said. 
you shall not reduce any bricks from the daily quota. Okay. Then, as they came out from Pharaoh, oh no, here's the problem. They met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Did you get what happened there? They're now blaming Moses for this. They're not blaming Pharaoh. Isn't that funny? Why are they not blaming Pharaoh? Why would you blame Moses? Moses trying to help you. Oh, classic principle. This is a classic principle that you can never forget. The application on this right here is that you have to recognize the tactic of divide and conquer. And please understand, like I told you, this is a spiritual battle, and don't think Satan is not fighting back. In this text, he, you just get a glimpse of where Satan's attacking. What did he do? He's dividing the Israelites from their leaders. So, so God starts in, and then Satan comes right back and fights back by divide and conquer. This is what will happen to you, my friends, when you take the responsibility to say something, to confront, to tell the truth in love. Guess what? The posse surrounding that person that you've just confronted will actually turn on you. And that's what most people are not prepared for. Like I told you, it's funny that these knuckleheads always have people surrounding them that follow them. And you think, who would follow Hitler? Who would follow Mao Zedong? Who would follow Gavin Newsom or Nancy Pelosi? Who would do that? Oh, because they're on all the same narrative. That's why. Same mindset. And so anyway, what then happens is when you go in there and you do the biblical thing of saying, bless God, this stops today. We're not having it anymore. This is the truth and, and all that God did, right? And you do it. You will experience a satanic attack where you will be tried to be cut off from those very people that should support you. And let that sink in. That is Satan's way of discouraging you from ever doing that again. Satan doesn't want you telling the truth to anybody. So guess what? I'll make your life miserable if you open your mouth again. I will show you that people will attack you and come after you. You thought you were doing something good to help people. Now you're going to get the reverberations back from them. And Moses is now experiencing that. And this, honestly, is the reason why a lot of people just don't confront. They, they've, they've done it before. They've paid a heavy price. Let me give you four things real quick before we get out of here about the application of this. Why we don't confront and issue the consequences as we should. So number one, the biggest thing we see is the fear of losing the relationship. We want the relationship, but you know they're acting like a knucklehead, and so we don't want to lose it, so we're afraid to confront with truth, and we're afraid to levy consequences. But actually, that's not true. That's not true. You actually can redeem the person according to Scripture if you state the truth and give consequences, and you let the consequences play out. The Scripture says that's the way to do it. Two, Fear of being the object of anger. They don't want everybody mad at them. So let's say you confront somebody in your family. All of a sudden, the rest of the family is going to turn on you like a sheep-killing dog for telling the truth about the knucklehead. 
because they love the knucklehead, but they are enablers of the knucklehead. Three, fear being hurtful. You know, it's a misperception. Well, if I tell the truth, that's really being hurtful. No, no, tell the truth in love. They, they think it's being hurtful. Well, I'm going to hurt them. Well, guess what? There's two types of pain. Telling someone the truth is called redemptive pain. Bad pain is not redemptive. Good pain is redemptive. So it is good. It is painful. But it is redemptive for them. And four, they don't want to be perceived as bad. And however they define bad and what, what is bad, they don't want to be seen as when I confront this person, I don't want to be looked at by everybody as being bad, so they just don't do it. Let me give you a, this illustration before we go. They have been studying humans for a long time. And what, what they've studied ends up going with what the Bible says all the time. For I don't know if they ever make that connection, but it is. But here's what they have found about people who are toxic, have addictions, have uh, behavior problems, character flaws, and, and that never change. Okay? What they find out is that that kind of person is surrounded by a network of relationships that enable the behavior. That is why they're not changing. Because no one's confronting, no one's saying anything, everyone's keeping their mouth shut because they want to just keep the peace. But when they look at why somebody turns into a toxic person or a belligerent or, or obstinate person, it's because the relationships are rescuing them from the consequences of acting like that. So there's an old saying, and I'll show it on the screen for you. If you are not part of the solution, you are part of the problem then. These churches that don't say anything, they don't speak out about what our culture is doing, they're part of the problem. In families, when you see Uncle Joe or, or, or Aunt Susie or whatever continue to act the way they act, it is because no one is confronting Uncle Joe or Aunt Susie. That's the problem. Because if someone did, it would start changing the behavior. Now, we can't change people, but you can change the environment around them. When you see what Moses is doing... That's a task that you and I will probably never have to do is confront someone like Pharaoh. But I can tell you this. On the spectrum, you will do this your whole life. So watch God, do what he says, and model after him and see what happens. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.